0: Well, today we continue our sermon series in the book of Ephesians by looking at chapter 1, verse 18. And so as you're turning to chapter 1, let me r- remind you that uh, this verse today um, is part of the, the middle section of a, you know, the truly uh, magnificent uh, prayer which the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. Um, it really is an incredible prayer. It, it's one, it's part of, this is the first part really of this middle section, this kind of heart of this prayer, um, that, uh, that you've, you've heard before, um, and certainly before right now, you've heard it, part of it prayed at least three times so far in this service. Um, in my invocation, uh, Pastor Richard Colquitt smuggled, smuggled it into the pastoral prayer, and so I was motivated to do the same thing, okay, right before uh, the, the, this time, right now. And so last week, Paul expressed his unceasing thanks for the Ephesian Christians, how he had heard the report about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he had heard about their love for all the saints. And then Paul also prayed, if you remember, that they would know God better, know him deeper. As I put it, that they would have a true knowledge of the one true God. And our passage today continues this prayer, that Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians would not only know God better, not only would they have this true knowledge of the one true God, but that they, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt what really is theirs in Christ Jesus, what he has secured for them with his life, death, and resurrection, what is the, the hope to which they've been called, the riches of their glorious inheritance. Now, this, this prayer from verse 15 to verse 23 is one long sentence in the original Greek text of nearly 170 words and so as we're moving through it little bit by little bit so today just one verse of it but as we keep moving through i want to read all of the prayer all of this section to us each sunday so that we don't lose sight of of the context of this prayer and what paul what paul is aiming at and so here now god's holy inspired inerrant life-giving word i'll begin reading ephesians 1 verse 15 for this reason The fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at this, this one verse that has three phrases, and we'll look at each phrase under a different heading. And so in this middle section of Paul's prayer, he addresses the eyes of our heart, the hope for our lives, and riches beyond calculation. So the eyes of our heart hope for our lives and riches beyond our calculations. So first, the eyes of our hearts. And so look with me at that opening phrase of Ephesians 1 verse 18. "Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened." Now obviously, Paul is using a figure of speech because our hearts do not have eyes. Uh, and so in the Bible, the heart, most often, refers to the, the whole inward self. So not the, the or, not the organ that's pumping blood, but the whole inward self comprising our, our minds as well as our emotions, the whole inward self. Now, what does Paul pray would happen to, to the eyes of our hearts? He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, given more light, illumined. Why? So we can see. So we can see what's there. So we can see what is is really there, what is really real. So we can see what is truly true. So that we can see what is really there and that we would be blind to unless our eyes are enlightened. Unless God opens our spiritual eyes to see. He prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, given more light, to see, to understand, to comprehend, to grasp the truth of God's word about God, about ourselves, and about what we possess in Christ. John Stott puts it simply, The eyes of the heart are simply our inner eyes, which need to be opened or enlightened before we can grasp God's truth. That Paul wants the Ephesians and us to see what is truly true, to see what is really real about God, about us, about what we possess in Christ. Therefore, we, we need the eyes of our hearts, our spiritual eyes, enlightened by the Holy Spirit that we might comprehend all of the spiritual blessings that are ours, that are already ours, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and without the Holy Spirit giving us spiritual eyes to see these truths, we won't see them. Even though they're, they're really real and they're truly true, we won't see them. As Charles Spurgeon once said, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it's easier, it's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian than it is to teach an unregenerate, unbelieving person the truth of the gospel. Put another way, we need God by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual eyes to see to see who god is to see who we are to see what god has done for us so this is how paul begins the heart of this prayer that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so let me, let me ask you this do you realize do you know do you realize that you need to pray this prayer for yourself you do i do we all do We need God to give us spiritual eyes to see and to hear the truth in God's Word. See, I fear that too many of us far too often think too highly of ourselves. That we think we don't need this enlightening of our eyes. That we don't need this, this God given help by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand His Word. But we do need this help, we're not self sufficient. We need God to graciously give us understanding by the power of his Holy Spirit. And God is gracious to to, to, to impress this upon me quite often. Quite often whenever I find myself trying to engage in, in sermon preparation or prepare to teach a lesson or I know I'm heading towards a pastoral counseling situation that's going to be very difficult and maybe intimidating or I find myself you know, bearing the burden of some leadership decision that's weighing on me and I, I can't pass off to somebody else. I've, I've got to weigh in on this. And I realize, <laughs> Richard, what have you been doing? Been trying to figure this out on your own. You've not asked God for help. You've not asked God to to open your eyes so that you can see and understand and grasp and comprehend the truth in his word and how to apply it in this situation, how to follow it in this situation. But friends, the good news is that when we ask God for this help, he delights to, to give it to us. God delights to hear his children pray, God, please enlighten the eyes of my heart that I may know you better, that I may grasp the truths in your word, that I may know who you are, who I am, and what I possess in Christ. See, we need to humbly ask God to open our spiritual eyes before we read the Bible in our private devotions. And before we read the Bible with our spouses, with our, with our children, and in our Sunday school classes, and our city groups, and here, here in this sanctuary. Let's not forget that. Um, yesterday, one of our ruling elders um, spoke to me briefly after a funeral service, and he, he told me that he wanted me to know that, that he had been praying for me. And he said, you know, nothing super specific. Just know that I just, I've been praying for you. And I want you, there were lots of encouraging things yesterday, but, but that was the most encouraging. I was so appreciative. You're all, you, you are all allowed to pray for me, too. I hope, I hope you will. I hope you will. I, I need it. Our staff pray for you. And I hope that, that you are praying Paul's prayer for yourself. I hope you're praying it for one another. That God would open the eyes of your heart. He would give you spiritual eyes to see the truth in God's word. And it's not just Paul who says this. Listen to what we read in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You know, what, what, if, what if we prayed this? I mean, imagine what God could do in your life, in your friendships, in your family, in our church, if we pray this each and every Sunday morning before we came into this sanctuary imagine that now what what comes next in this section of Ephesians 1 specifically I'm thinking about verses 18 to 20 now we're not going past 18 today but in that section we have uh, really the heart of this prayer it's really an incredible incredible section and I had hoped to cover all of it today but I realized there's there's no way It's this is too much too much great stuff And one commentator referred to this as a tricolon crescendo. Now, I never heard that phrase before, a tricolon crescendo, but that's just his fancy way of saying there are three statements, three parallel statements, back to back to back, and each one gets longer and longer and longer. The second's longer than the first, the third's longer than the second, and each one increases in its magnitude, saying greater and greater things, leading to a climax or a crescendo. Now, we're only going to look at two of these parallel statements today, but, the, but these two make up our next two headings. Okay, so the next heading is hope for our lives. And we see this in, in the second or the middle phrase in, in Ephesians 1 verse 18. So Paul, Paul prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is The hope to which he has called you. You may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And I think that the two key words we've got to understand are hope and called. Okay, so first hope. That word hope does not mean wishful thinking. Doesn't mean. I hope so. You know. Hope it works out. I'm hoping for some good news. I hope it doesn't rain. You know, I, I hope the Texans become a good football team in my lifetime. <laughs> no, this hope, the, the Christian's hope, is, is based on the rock-hard certainty of the promises of the future that God has made to you, his people. So listen, listen to just a few of, of the Bible's verses and passages that highlight this hope. I want you to listen to them and you know one um, once we uh member of the church said to me after the first service he said I wish you know I like the way you clarify that hope is not wishful thinking but I wish there was a different word besides hope because we we, we do keep defaulting back to it being wishful thinking and I hope it happens the problem is the bible is just it's just full of this word hope that word's a perfectly good word we just need to understand it correctly and so listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That This hope is a living hope that we're born again. We're born again to. We're born again into this living hope. There's also Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This living hope, this blessed hope. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 6, verses 18 to 20 says, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I mean, what a phrase. The sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. See, the Christian's hope is called the anchor of the soul because this hope, this blessed living hope, this anchor of the soul really does give stability for the Christian to for the christian life here and now so first there's hope second there's the word called so look again at that that middle section of ephesians 1 verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you okay so think about this what what is the hope to which god called the ephesian christians well it's, it's the hope of salvation in christ this hope of, salva- of the salvation in Christ that they were called to. That this calling is not the general call of the gospel. Okay, it's not the general proclamation, invitation of the gospel that, that people can hear and respond to or, or hear and just dismiss. It's not that general call. This calling is what theologians call the effectual call of God on his elect. The effectual call refers to God's calling of his people, his elect from among all the nations with saving power. That that if you are a Christian, it's because you have been called by God with saving power through the gospel. And the apostle Paul has been teaching us this throughout Ephesians 1, speaking about our election before the foundation of the world, how in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through jesus christ he's been talking about our election this predestination now he's talking about this calling this effectual calling and in one of the summary verses that puts a lot of these themes together is romans chapter 8 verse 30 and so listen to what paul says there and those whom he predestined he also called those whom he called he also justified those whom he justified he also glorified and so, so here in this one verse, I mean, there's Paul looks back and he looks forward, and there's this unbreakable chain. See, everyone whom he predestined, he also called. Not one is lost from that. Everyone he called, he also justified. Not one is lost from that. Everyone he justified, he also glorified. That everyone he predestined, he calls he justifies he glorifies he brings all of his people all of the way home this unbreakable chain so i want you to think about this that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you dear christian do you see why this matters the significance of this Richard Phillips tries to help explain this to us. He says, knowing that our conversion was God's sovereign work, we are certain of receiving all that he has promised. All the way from that predestination to being glorified, all the way home. Knowing that our conversion was God's sovereign work, we are certain of receiving all that he has promised. Just as a building rests on its foundation, the Christian hope rests on the divine calling, knowing, as Paul said in Romans eleven twenty nine, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If I have been called by God, then my hope is secure. That this secure hope, this living hope, this blessed hope, this This anchor of the soul, this hope to which God has called you, is not merely a hope which is reserved for some time far off in the future. It is the present possession, and it's to be the present experience and the present, the current, here-today source of strength and encouragement for every believer. In the good times and the bad, in the uncertain times, in the confusing times, Now, I'm going to read a long quote, but it's very good, and it's very pastoral. It's from Sinclair Ferguson, and he he goes to great lengths to try to help us understand why this matters. He says, the world of heavenly love, which is the future destiny of believers, is already ours. The Spirit who has poured it into us also indwells us as the guarantee of the final inheritance. That we read about, we studied back in November in Ephesians 1, verse 14. Why does the hope to which he has called you hold such a priority in Paul's prayers for his friends? Because how we live the Christian life is in large measure determined by how we think about the future. How you live your life today is determined in large measure by what you believe about the future about your future, about who God is, about who you are, about what you possess in Christ. Putting it another way, the purpose behind God's revelation about the future is to transform the way we live in the present. The church has lost this sense of the practical implications of the hope of the gospel, We need to see the future clearly if we are to live in the present faithfully. For the truth is, Christians are never too heavenly-minded to be any earthly use. That's never the case. It's far more likely that we are little earthly use because we are too this-worldly-minded. Since the Ephesians have been raised with Christ, they are called to live the life of the future in the present. What, what 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 Ferguson says is that Paul is clearly trying to lift our gaze, lift our gaze beyond, above the here and now, this imminent frame that's before us, and, and what we can, can put our hands around and put in our pockets and put in our mouths and what we can accumulate. He's calling us to lift our gaze and to think about all of these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. To so look again at Ephesians 1, verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. See, Paul wants the Ephesians to know this. He's praying for them. May God open your eyes so that you don't miss this, that you understand this, that you grasp this, that this is not just something you you know intellectually, but, but it makes it to your heart, to the eyes of your heart, that it impacts the way you are living here and now. See, Dear Christian, do you know the hope you have in Christ? The, the, the Christian hope, this living hope, this blessed hope, this anchor of the soul, this hope to which he has called you, even you, this hope, your hope, dear Christian, can stand up and stand strong through every temptation to give in and every temptation to give up. That it can stand up and in and stand strong through every trial, every disappointment, every uncertainty, every suffering, even death. Do you know why? The hope to which God has called you is grounded in Christ's work, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. The hope to which God has called you is the sure and certain anchor of a promise that Christ's atoning death on the cross really does forgive you of all of your sin, cleanses you completely, thoroughly, washes your sin away removes it from you as far as the east is from the west and not only is it that you've been washed clean but trusting in christ and his life death and resurrection means that god the father not only are you washed clean from your sin but you are clothed with christ's righteousness it's imputed to you credited to you counted as yours and one day, when you die, you will pass from the land of the dying to the land of the living, where you will enjoy fellowship with your triune God and all of his people for all eternity. See, John Stott says, All this was in God's mind when he called us. He called us to Christ and holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory. More simply, it was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, we love, we obey, we serve Christ, we enjoy fellowship with him and with each other, and look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. This is the hope to which he has called you. Paul prays that our eyes may be opened to know it. Praise but the eyes of our hearts, hope for our lives. And here's this third heading, riches beyond our calculation. That brings us to that last section of verse 18. That the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, it's an incredible phrase, incredible phrase. But I have to confess that... Uh, among the pastors and commentators that I trust, they're almost split down the middle on what this means, and they can't really agree. They agree it's incredible, but they can't agree exactly what it means, and so here's here's the dilemma, is that the original Greek words, much like our English translation, if you keep looking at it, uh, could either be referring to how we are God's inheritance, or how Or it could be referring to the inheritance that God has for us. Okay, that is, the end of verse 18 is either describing us, God's people, as God's own inheritance, his possession, or the end of verse 18 is describing the riches of the glorious inheritance that God has for us. Okay, now on the one hand, the Old Testament teaches us that God's people were indeed his inheritance, his possession, his treasured possession. On the other hand, the Bible teaches us that we have a heavenly inheritance in Christ. So, for example, we we see this in, in a parallel passage to Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, verse 12, we read, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That seems to be pointing to an inheritance that God has for us. If you think back, okay, to where we were back in the fall, back in November, to Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we read, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That also speaks of our inheritance that God has for us. Okay, so are we God's treasure or does God bless us with his treasure? And the answer is, yes, that's right, that's right, yes. These are two sides of the same coin, but I do have to make a decision on which one I think is the particular meaning of of this section of verse 18. And so I agree that Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened for us to know the riches of the glorious inheritance that God has for us. The inheritance he has for us, his people, the saints in Christ Jesus the treasure God has for us, the treasure he guards for us, that he keeps for us in Christ Jesus. So we look at verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so do you hear how those superlatives are just stacked up one upon the other? Riches, glorious inheritance. Sinclair Ferguson asked, why is it important that our eyes are open to see this? Because seeing this brings us a deep sense of dignity and security. Dignity is ours because of the knowledge that we are treasured by the great God in whom our lasting treasure is to be found. Security is guaranteed by the knowledge that he guards those he treasures as well as the treasures which are theirs. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. I've already read verse 3 to you, but let's just do it again and listen to the, this, this security that you find in verses 4 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you guarded in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance that's guarded for us and that we're guarded for it. And so do you hear the, the security and the assurance and the confidence and the certainty in those verses? But Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians and for you is that you, that we would know what are the riches of our glorious inheritance that's ours, that we possess now, and that we're headed towards. Now, there's a story that I think illustrates this, um, a, a true story, um, and it has to do with the time when uh, the, the Bible commentator, the Puritan Matthew Henry, his parents, this is before he was born, his parents were dating, they were courting, and uh, they, they 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 were young adults dating courting, and his father Philip fell in love with this beautiful young woman, and uh, she fell in love with him. Both followers of Jesus, but the, the challenge was is that she was from a much higher social class, and so you know, and he was from a much lower class. And so I know a lot of you men know what that's like. Um, I, I you know I, I know exactly what that's like to to fall in love with a woman who's much high in a much higher station than you are. Uh, But the problem is that her parents were unhappy about this match. And so her parents went to their daughter and asked her daughter, this man, Philip Henry, where has he come from? And they knew the answer. They're trying to get her to, to just say it out loud. But this daughter's answer was brilliant and theologically correct according to Ephesians 1. She said, I don't know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. And that's what makes all the difference, right? And a brilliant answer. And that's exactly in line with what we see here. And think about that. Think about, think about how that, that statement, that brilliant answer, flies in the face of so much that's around us in our culture. I mean, think about that. I, you know, I, I don't know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. And where he is going matters so much more than where he has come from. I mean, think about the way that that just just flies in the face of the identity politics that are around us. Where where you're from is all that matters. Think about how that flies in the face of materialism, the idolatry of materialism. That's certainly rampant in in, in our nation and, and in our city. Materialism, that idolatry that that drives a lot of, you know, the hustle and the bustle here in Houston. That shapes many of our social circles. I don't know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. It's a brilliant answer. Paul wants you, dear Christian, to know where you are going. He wants you to know, For we read in Ephesians 1.18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And notice that last phrase, in the saints. You remember last week that one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was given to unceasing thanks um, in prayer for the Ephesians, it was not only their faith in the Lord Jesus, it was that, but it was also their love for all the saints. It was their love for one another. And I think that Paul highlights this again, in the saints, because Christianity, while it is personal, it's not meant to be private. While it is personal, it's not meant to be private. It's not meant to be independent. It's it's not a solo sport, okay? I'm not opposed to solo sports. I like team sports a little bit better, but I'm not opposed to But it's not a solo sport. That your hope is your hope, but it's not just your hope. That your inheritance is your inheritance, but it's not just for you that part of what makes the riches of our inheritance so glorious is that we will enjoy it together with all the saints, together with all who who love and long for the day of Christ appearing for all eternity. And this is part of why you, why we need to be here together in this room Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is part of the reason why we promote our Sunday morning classes and our city groups and our various retreats throughout the year. That we share in the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints together with one another. That we are to be a church family and to live as a church family. Okay, so so in closing, I want you to listen to all of verse 118, all of Ephesians 1 verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians and that we today would have the spiritual eyes to see what we have, what is really real, what is truly true, what we really have in Christ. See, Paul's not praying for for something something new to become true. Paul is praying that we would have the eyes to see, to comprehend, to grasp, and to live in light of what is already true, what is already true about us. What is already ours in Christ, and what awaits us in Christ. The riches of our glorious inheritance. One of my favorite gospel summary verses is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, Christ took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave that you would have the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. And I have to imagine you hear that phrase, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and you like the way that sounds. But let me ask you, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? What are these riches of this glorious inheritance? The answer, according to the Bible, may surprise you. But as you reflect on it, and the eyes of your hearts are enlightened, you would say yes. Yes. That is what is most glorious. That is what is most valuable. Richard Phillips puts it this way. Our ultimate inheritance is God himself. He gives himself to us in Christ, even as he takes us to himself. With renewed eyes, we will see in heaven what now only the eyes of our hearts can see. The vision of God in his glory, infinite perfection extended to us in infinite love. I don't know where he came from, but I know where he is going See, Paul wants you to know where you are going and he wants you to live in light of this glorious truth today. And now listen Listen to where the Bible says, you are going follower of Christ. Right now he wants the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you can see, so you can understand what you have. One day you're going to see, you're going to see with your own eyes what is your glorious inheritance in the saints. We see this in Revelation 22 verses 3 to 5. the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Please give us, each and every one of us, give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. That we may know what are the riches of our glorious inheritance, and we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.